I caught up with Brian Pearson, the former CEO of Loyalty One, which was the backbone of the Air Miles Rewards program. He literally wrote the book on loyalty. And in this episode, he shares the ins and outs of building a loyal customer base. Brian, thanks for joining. Uh, really excited to have have this conversation with you. Let's let's get right into it. You know, you recently retired from from Loyalty One as CEO in 2019. Tell us a little bit about your time there and what you've been up to since. Yeah, it's it's hard to believe how long I'd actually been there. Um, you know, I left after almost 28 years of working at Loyalty One from the very beginning, being like the 20th guy in the room trying to get air miles to actually succeed in Canada to becoming president in 99, to becoming CEO in 2006. So, you know, it's, uh, I really grew up in the company and grew up with the industry. Um, and uh, when you when you look back on it, it's, it's hard to believe that you were in and around the space for as long as I was, but frankly, there was never really a dull day. Um, you know, in the latter decade, we uh, doubled our overall revenues plus, I think maybe quadrupled and eight times uh, return on the bottom line from where we were. And it was about expanding the business globally, um, adding an analytics business that really focused on retail analytics uh, and continuing to think about how we took air miles to another, another level. So um, that's been the run up to retirement. At retirement, what have I been doing? The plan was originally to travel, actually, Scott, if we're frank, quite yeah. frank about it for a year. Everybody said, do nothing for six months to 12 years. People be knocking yeah. down your door. And all that was pretty true, but nobody counted on a pandemic in the middle of my travel schedule. So we traveled <laughs> for six months. And then uh, I've sort of started life as a strategic advisor and a board member and um, you know, it's fun just to not be tied to anything and discover the great technologies that are out there. It's been exciting. I'm sure a lot of young companies like Estaflo are learning a, a ton of information from you just based on your experience, you know, scaling up a company like Loyalty One. So it's cool. I, I'm finding that there actually is a cesspool of useful information back there somewhere. <laughs> and uh, and I've enjoyed actually interacting and going back to the very early days in a lot of ways. Um, I love the, I love startups. I love the that early stage where you're really framing up what the value proposition is and trying to understand yeah. where the market's going, what customers are doing. And, uh, you know, those sort of strategic, cultural, purpose-based discussions. Um, I really love spending time doing that with entrepreneurs. It's, it's very exciting. So let's set the foundation on, on loyalty. You make a, a differentiation between loyalty with capital L and loyalty with a lowercase L. Can you explain the importance of this, this nuance? Yeah, I think it, it gets down to, basic customer marketing, which is versus sort of the intent of the business. And um, I would say Big L loyalty is really about um, that true connection that a customer has with a brand. It's, it's um, we used to define loyalty as the continued interaction between a consumer and a brand given a meaningful competitive alternative, right? That was sort of our definition of loyalty. Um, and small L loyalty for me really is the programmatic things that you're doing and uh, and how you support and help create uh, loyalty, big L loyalty. And I think that, um, you know, I started down this path years ago talking about measured marketing. And I always felt that a loyalty program was a great way to kind of cause a consumer to put their hand up, to, to effectively have them want to engage in a conversation and say, I'm interested in building, let's say, a deeper relationship. Maybe that's too strong a word, but a deeper connection with a brand or with a retailer. Um, and that that uh, that the, the mechanism that you create there is the opportunity to have a two-way dialogue and the opportunity to 
to also um, be able to understand more about the customer so that you can frame the entire branded experience to really reach Big L loyalty, which is foundational loyalty with a customer. Um, can you talk about some of the tactical things that that Loyalty One was focused on in driving uh, Big L loyalty for some of your biggest customers that were the were the retailers you supported? Yeah, I think the uh, the focus we had from the very beginning was really to recognize that most of our clients, especially our retail clients uh, who didn't have a subscription base, uh, really had no feel or understanding on what was happening in the underlying dynamics of their business, who was shopping, how frequently came in, how many customers were sort of loyal. And so we almost started with the Pareto principle, which was, you know, basically the 80-20 rule, the, the understanding that a disproportionately small amount of your customers represent a large amount of your revenue and, and uh, even larger amount of your profitability. Um, understanding who the customers were, helping the clients to begin to think about uh, how they focus not purely on what we used to call a conquest mentality, which was always about winning new customers, but on really about mining uh, their existing customer base and finding ways to create better customers from people who had already made the decision and indicated that they could shop with you and use your services. So, you know, it's it sounds very basic, but at the end of the day, um, you know, if you turn the clock back 25 years, uh, that was pretty pretty monumental um, and, and a big change for the way that those retailers thought about their businesses. Uh, from there, it really was the substance of uh, learning how to market, how to use uh, very targeted marketing communications, how to, um, how to connect and figure out how to optimize your offer structures and figure out what consumers were willing to do or not do by what today we would call A-B testing, right? Uh, this idea of uh, providing different offers to different segments of, of, uh, of uh, your consumer base and then seeing which responded, um, which created the greatest response and then helping the, the, the companies that we worked with understand how to optimize this database and this database of information that we were creating together. So a lot of your retailers were really using that contractor recurring revenue model that a lot of SaaS companies use to make sure that they had that recurring purchase behavior of customers and creating that loyalty where they went back to that grocery store or that drugstore or other retailer for all of their all of their business. I think most uh, most of the retailers, when we actually started to share the information, were surprised by the concentration of revenue that they had. Um, and, you know, as we became more sophisticated, not only could we sort of look at the, the classic RFM, recency frequency monitoring, in other words, how, when was the last time they were in, how frequently did they actually shop with you or use your services, and how much were they spending in total? Not only were we able to do that, which helped frame a bit of lifetime value calculation, another thing which has sort of come back to the forefront in the last little while, um, but we could get even deeper because we would start to look at the categories where people were buying. We were starting inferring things by virtue of not only the demographic information we collected by self-reported information, but also, you know, what could be inferred by how the consumer used your service. And so, you know, that profile became more robust and richer. Our learning on the offer dynamics became more robust and richer. And as a coalition, in other words, a company that sat in the middle of a whole bunch of different retail and service categories, we could really start to look at the consumer behavior as well and look for how consumers reacted over time. Um, and the consistency in which they 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 interacted in different in different sectors, 
Um, I always laugh because, you know, the bank of Montreal is one of our clients and they used to say, well, what am I going to learn from um, the grocery customer and what the customer is doing in grocery or in fuel retail? Um, it's irrelevant. I sell yeah. credit cards and bank services. And it's like, you know, the fundamental dynamics, the decision tree might be different, but the fundamental dynamics of how that consumer goes about engaging and what they see as valuable and how they want to be treated you know, those experiences were relatively consistent. And uh, and so there was a lot of leverage that we got just by working in so many different categories with so many different customers. That's amazing. And, and so I think that brings me to to my next question. Um, you you wrote a book loyal, called Loyalty Leap uh, back in 2012. As as you've, that's what eight years ago already now. Over the last eight years, what are some things that you think loyalty marketing loyalty marketers and brands are, are still getting wrong? Uh, a lot, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, th- I think it's actually the, this whole pandemic COVID situation has brought uh, uh, quite a bit of it to light. So um, one of the things that they really haven't uh, done, I think there's still a large gap in, for most people who have these programs believe they're just an alternative to discount. It's another monetary um, uh, value driver, and they aren't really yeah. focusing on understanding the broader spectrum of what you can do with the customer. I think the second thing is, um, you know, there's a lot being done these days with data and trying to eliminate what I call the data silos uh, or data ghettos within the organization. Uh, but my sense is that there still is a lot of work that can be done to really focus on understanding data as an asset and how you structure it and and consolidate it so you can create a language which is spoken across the organization. And I still believe that that's not entirely where it needs to be. And then I think the last one is just a byproduct of sort of the marketing environment we're in. So much is skewed to the digital uh, platforms that are there. And the cost of those digital platforms is such that you know, I think there's still uh, an, an, an ability to be fairly sloppy in your marketing. And uh, what I mean yeah. by that is untargeted uh, or just doing retargeting because somebody searched, you know, your product category at some point. And while that's all very yeah. effective, uh, I just think there's a lot more intelligence that can be brought to bear on, on how you engage customers. And there might be a return. So I, I have sort of three predictions coming out of COVID and, you know, I think a lot of people opened the box, which was their loyalty program, thinking we've got rich sets of customers in here, we've got data on them, and, you know, they're highly responsive and, you know, this is going to save the day. And then they opened the box and a bunch of moths flew out and they were like, oh, my God, you know, we've, we've <laughs> yeah. underinvested in this asset. We haven't taken care of it. Um, we've taken it for granted. And now when we need it, it's not the asset we think we had. Um, and so, you know, my, my bet is there'll be a refocus or a renaissance around loyalty or customer experience based initiatives. And other there's things that tie you back to understand your customer better. I also think, um, that, uh, because of the skewed online in many categories now, I think we'll see a return also to people thinking about their proprietary communications in a more relevant and meaningful way, trying to connect with customers in a way that, that makes more sense. So that's, uh, yeah, ideally, I think those two things will come to pass. And, you know, I'm hoping that in the course of that, um, you know, the analytics will get even even deeper. So you, you touched on proprietary ways of communication tied to tied to loyalty, you know, and the fact that a lot of large companies were going digital and trying to do um, retargeting ad buys and all that type of stuff. 
do you see as as this starts to transition out of COVID, do you see a, a more a larger need for that personalized local approach to customer interactions? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's always value in uh, more personalized and local. I, I think that, um, uh, you know, if you go back early in the days of the Air Miles program, uh, you know, I was going into the supermarket. I was spending my my dollars every week. There's yeah. a pretty consistent shopping behavior that I exhibit. And then you'd get your offers from the retailer and, you know, one out of 10 things that they offered you bonus miles on to come in and spend were things you'd never put in your basket. And you kind of look at that and you go, yeah. well, wait a second, like, I know you're collecting information inherently. And, you know, how can you not at least acknowledge who I am as a customer and kind of what I, how I'm interacting with your products and services? And uh, that used to really aggravate me. Um, and we did some testing and showed that, you know, if you send 10 new offers to somebody, uh, your, your propensity of somebody to respond to one of those is much lower than if you send seven offers that are relevant and three that are pushing the customer to try new things within your store. And that is putting it into a personal context. You've got the sense that the retailer is saying, Hey, I know who you are. I'm giving you things that that indicate that I, I understand how you shot my store. And oh, by the way, here's a couple things you might want to try basis, you know, the, the kind of shopping behavior that you've exhibited in the past. And you see the offer response rates of those offers went up fairly dramatically as long as you weren't trying to do something really obtuse. Um, yeah, and so sure. I really do think that, that, uh, uh, that there's so much opportunity in just about, you know, 95% of the stuff that comes across my email box um, you would think that I have never interacted or get, they've obtained my email in some nefarious way and I've never interacted with that company in the past. You know, there's no acknowledgement of what I've done. There's no acknowledgement of the types of wine I like to drink. It's just here's a bleh, here's a bunch of stuff that you can, you know, you can get extra points on or discounts on. Yeah. And uh, so I think the world would just be a richer place. Um, I had, uh, if you permit me one more story, I had uh you know, one of the chapters in the book from way back was really around privacy and why I didn't think privacy was a significant issue if you actually use the data with good purpose and with good intent around reflecting the consumer's interests and needs back to them. And, and the reason for that um, is really pretty pretty straightforward. And, and that is that uh, if if I am willing to share information and you're willing to act on that, I'll share even more information. And, uh, and I used to use this example, the reporters, when they pressed me on it, which is, well, imagine you go into your grocery store and you love organic and, and bio biodynamic foods and that yeah. kind of stuff. And all of a sudden you went to your local grocery store and one aisle had been completely dedicated over the weekend to actually offering these products and putting them all in one place so that it was easier to shop. And if I told you that they'd use the data on the customers in the store to basically decide on how they're going to reline the store to serve their customers better... Do you think that's okay that they're using that information to do that? And and would you appreciate it as a consumer? And, you know, for hundred percent of them said, yeah, that would be a great experience. That'd be something I would hope that the retailer, you know, my, my retailer would do. So, you know, I think it, it ranges everywhere from communications all the way to the physical interpretation of how you bring your brand forward and data and knowing your customers. I mean, isn't that foundationally the principle of what we're in business to do, understand our customers and serve them the best way we can and provide them with an experience which lives with our purpose and brand, right? So so I, I have to ask, I was at, I worked for Frito-Lay PepsiCo years ago, right out of school. I remember the transition of 
having those organic aisles 15 years ago, 16 years ago, was that based on loyalty one recommendation and data or is that no, a that theoretical? Is, that was a theoretical. Um, it was probably based, it was based on trends as much as anything else and trying to yeah. highlight it and probably some consumer feedback, but you could definitely, I mean, the mechanics of being able to go in, uh, identify where consumers are buying things and then run um, a test store if you want and do a realignment and then yeah. look at how consumers behaved and did those consumers that bought those purchases actually now that you realign the store actually double down and do incremental uh, incremental amount of volume and therefore spend more money in the store. I mean, those are tests that we definitely did conduct in a variety of ways over the years. Um, but I, I can't claim uh, responsibility for helping the food retailers put organic aisles in their stores. All right, fine. Um, so any example, you talked about what's what's not going right, what a lot of the loyalty marketers are not doing right. Any examples of companies or industries, verticals, et cetera, that are, are getting this right? Question I, I often uh, don't love answering just because I think that there's lots of retailers that are doing instances or examples um, of uh, programs uh, or tactical loyalty that, that they express what I'd love to see in a, in a good way. But for most uh, companies, I'd say there's still a lot of room for improvement. And I'm, I'm hoping to see that, uh, again, this COVID situation will cause people to revisit how they might go about using their loyalty programs and, and enhancing the overall experience beyond just a rewards or discount structure. Um, in terms of the value offering. I think the, the flip side is, you know, if you were to point to places where I think we've seen dramatic improvements, certainly the food retailers who used to send you offers for things that you never bought in store because they were just interested in driving you to places yeah. you weren't going. Um, I think that they've certainly honed their strategy. And now you see that, you know, if you get 10 offers, seven of them are products that you buy. And you really start to get the sense that they're listening and that they can see uh, what are important products and categories to you. And then they're willing to offer you two or three additional things, which frankly, if you send me seven things that I care about, um, I'm far more likely to say, yeah, you know me, and maybe I will try the deli, this deli item that you're recommending for me. Uh, and then I think the other one that, that we're seeing um, more value come out of in the last little while, and, I, and I'll just credit Amazon, although you know, I think the prime is such a juggernaut, you know, you've seen a lot more paid programs out there. Um, but I, what I like about Amazon prime is that they're really thinking about the extended value proposition. So it's not just about, I get free delivery and, uh, and expedited delivery as a result of, uh, being a prime member, but you know, now I'm getting the, the other services that are provided, whether it's music or video, um, or movies. And, uh, and so, they're extending the value into, into other new ways. I still think that it still feels a little bit like retargeting, like you looked at this and therefore I'm recommending this. So, you know, they're supposed to have this incredible recommendation engine, but um, I still think there's a lot of headroom that they would have given the volume of data that they could have on somebody to be much more uh, interesting in how they presented, uh, in how they present, um, uh, other products and services. And so that's where I look, you know, do you know me? Uh, are you doing something interesting where you're, you're providing me and you, you're, you're indicating and sort of helping me experience your brand in a new and different way? And are you finding unique ways to provide value added offerings, which again, reflect who I am and, and what you would learn about me. And, you know, if I use those three hurdles, 
you come up, you don't come up with a lot of companies who really are ticking those boxes. You talked about the kind of three principles of what folks had to look at in terms of loyalty post COVID. Do you think there's any clear winners that have really rebranded themselves and positioned themselves a lot better than maybe four or five months ago? If you look at it, I think the brand recently, some brand scores and brand trust scores came out. And I think the food retailers generally all had a giant uptick. And so the yeah. consumer who was probably, you know, at the bottom level of Maslow's pyramid of, of, of hierarchy of needs, you know, about survival and safety and still needed to go out and do food shopping. Um, you know, I think that the food retailers did a wonderful job of navigating through that, whether it was stockouts, whether it was the safety concerns, whether it was managing the balance between employee safety and the customer safety. Now, I think that I think they came out um, very well. Uh, through that process. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, there's some restaurants and some people who pivoted quickly to figure out, you know, how they were going to create more revenue and the net of that and food service organizations that started delivering direct to the consumer when the restaurant business dried up. You know, I think there'll be some winners and some enduring change that comes out of um, those sorts of uh, experiences. Um, so, yeah, I do think there's some some real winners um resulting from from the outcome. I think the other thing that's that's interesting, and it's sort of everything spoken about the dynamic of uh, the change with respect to online shopping. But one of the ones that I, I love, and it's a personal example is, you know, I'm a Prime, Amazon Prime member. I go in and, and look at Prime um, to look up a product uh, that I was needed. And of course, it was one of those things that was completely sold out and you couldn't get and it wasn't hand sanitizer uh and it said you know well your delivery it wasn't a priority product so the delivery was then yeah. six weeks out and i looked at it and went i'm not waiting six weeks for this so i started to look for other alternatives and i ordered something online through canadian tire well you know the amazing thing is i would never have ordered online through canadian tire i would never have done click and collect at best buy um i would have just gone to the store but because of the uh, the situation with Amazon, where I would buy direct, obviously, uh, they kind of incented me to try alternatives. And, and so I think there's this whole halo effect that nobody's really written about Absolutely. as a result of the challenges that, that even Amazon had in dealing with the volumes that, that came about as a result of the, the pandemic. You know, you're a big proponent of extending customer data to the frontline employees. What do retailers stand to gain by giving the frontline that level of information? Yeah, I, you know, I, it's not without also saying that it needs to be done carefully and obviously respecting privacy. And uh, but I do think that in certain environments, uh, it makes a lot of sense for uh, the ability for a customer with maybe your per permission right on the spot to be able to to look you up. Um, you know, there there were we, we actually did this as well, but there were uh, tests that were done going back two decades where. Uh, you know, cards were rigged with an RFID. And as soon as a very valuable customer came into like a branch or into the grocery store, that's the one we tried, it would ping and basically send a message to the store manager or branch manager. And then they would come down and, and have a little handshake and a, how's everything going and, you know, make the customer feel extra special. That was maybe a little forced and contrived, but it, you know, let's face it, we, we are human beings. We, we sort of respond to that kind of psychological stroking. And, uh, and so the question then becomes, you know, how do you create that in a non-intrusive, non-I'm-spying-on-you manner, but in a way that creates an improved experience? So, 
let's just say I'm, uh, uh, we'll go back to Lululemon as an example. I'm in Lululemon. I buy, bought a lot of clothes there over time. And, yeah. um, and the, uh, I can't remember the size. I really like this shirt, but I didn't remember the size I got the last time uh, or the color or what colors I have. You know, imagine if a store clerk could say, well, you know, let me scan your, your loyalty card or whatever unique identifier I have for you. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, you bought the red and the green and you've got the black. You don't have the white. And you can go, okay, well, I'll take the white. I really, just really love this shirt. Um, yeah. And it's, it's as simple as that. It's about, um, you know, thinking about, how do you how can you use the information you have customers to enhance the experience to to either introduce them to new products or to uh, be able to answer questions readily or even to to be able to look and say oh well here's scott wow he's a super customer you know when he comes to the checkout it's like hey um you know these are amazing running socks and i know you're totally into running and uh, i'd like you to try them for free and to give the latitude to the to the to the employee to enable that to happen so uh i just think there's a lot of a lot of uh latitude and and value that could be added by virtue of providing the frontline associates with data it goes back to you know really arming those reps they they know their customers best there's a whole bunch of data if we put that data in the arms of those frontline folks Nine times out of ten, they know what to do with it, and probably will help drive your your bottom line and top line quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have talked about the old corner store, corner grocery store, whatever the guy yeah. was on Little House in the Prairie. That's really dating me. <laughs> but uh, I had that experience. I lived in a small town, Peterborough. I worked for yeah. the Quaker Oats Company very early on in my career. There was one guy who sold fine quality suits, which we all wore at that point, uh, to the office. And when you went in to see him, you'd go and look, oh, I love this suit. And you'd look at him and he would nod or he'd shake his head. And it was like, <laughs> oh, can't have that one? Who bought that one? And he'd say, yeah, the president of the company bought that one. Okay, well, what about this one? And he'd shake his head and you go, well, who bought that? Director of marketing bought that one last week. And so he, he kind of curated the wardrobes of everybody in the company so people wouldn't show up at the, you know, you know, navy blue suit, whatever, that's fine. It doesn't yeah. matter. But, you know, in the time when there were plaids and checks and things, you didn't want to show up in the meeting with exactly the same suit as the president of the company. That was sort of a bad move. So he he was the guy who made sure nobody was offside. It was really sort of fascinating. So in, in your book, you, you mentioned a framework of three R's, rewards, recognition, and relevance. As a retailer, how can I use this framework to drive emotional loyalty and ultimately customer intimacy? Yeah, I... I at the end of the day, it's a little what we've talked about so far. It's, it's um, uh, you know, the rewards piece is where most of them stop. And that's the problem is that, yeah. you know, just rewarding somebody doesn't really pull at the emotional heartstrings, except for a small percentage of people who we would call financial optimizers. And they are looking for the deal and they've figured out exactly what a loyalty point is worth and uh and where they should trade off discount for loyalty points and you know if you that's who you're targeting and that's all you want to do that's great but great brands you know generally yeah. sell things at, at normal prices and they create other value for the consumer and so you know if you move towards the right towards the the relevant side that's really starting to tug at the ability to connect with your customer um and i think that uh that if if you always feel better, you know, you always feel a higher emotional connection um, to people and brands that uh, seem to understand or connect with the values and, and the things that you find most important. So that's why the migration from rewards to relevance is just 
so important. Uh, and, uh, and um, you know, the thing about emotional loyalty is it's very hard to measure. I think we can say it and everybody knows what it means because it's an emotional thing, yeah. but emotions by the de facto are very hard to, to actually uh, register. And that's why we've ended up with the things like net promoter score out there. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to reach even beyond net promoter score. You have to reach to that point where, um, you know, people have real, real passion and real interest in sharing their experiences with you as a brand. It's, it's interesting. I was just having a conversation with a mid-sized retailer um, last week and they're in telco, you know, in that multi-brand space, they're heavy on gift cards to drive traffic and drive specific brand purchases, have customers going to that retailer versus another. And part of the conversation I was having with them is, you know, if you actually have a real relationship with your customer, you're interacting with them multiple times over that in telco over that two year span, you're going to probably save spend on gift cards that, that rewards piece because they see your store, your your sales rep as their go-to store rep to to do business with. And that's that's something we've stood firm on for a while is create that that relevance and recognition with those customers and make them feel like you are their their go-to location. Similar to Gentry and Pedro. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> so as le- leader at Loyalty One, how'd you make sure that every single department function employee was obsessed with customer centricity? Again, knowing that loyalty one, your business was built on driving customer loyalty. How did you ensure that was instilled across the entire organization? Yeah, I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, when you have loyalty in your name, that you know, your purpose yeah. purpose built for helping your client companies understand how to build uh, that long term connection with their consumers. So, foundationally, everything we did in the organization kind of pointed in that direction, and I think you know, to both its benefit and to its detriment over 25 years, you know, you start to really exercise the muscle around um, the mechanisms, the learnings you have. uh, And when you constantly reinforce that, um, and it's done through the training, it's done through how you introduce data and the importance of, uh, of the kind of results that you create out of that, um, when you're when you're bombarded, I think as an associate with case study after case study of success stories on how this has worked for different um, client companies, um, you kind of drink the Kool Aid at that point, and you really do become, you know, kind of a passionate advocate for it. Or I yeah. think you kind of look and say, uh, yeah, this is not my tribe, and you know, I kind of need to find a different thing because I want to <laughs> I want to be doing marketing on this basis, and so. Um, so success breeds it. There's no question about it. Uh, we were very focused from a, a leadership uh, standpoint in terms of how we developed uh, our know-how, how we shared that know-how. Uh, and then I think the other thing is, you know, we we were constantly at the forefront working with our partners. Um, so whether that was in the early days, printers, <laughs> uh, and later on the digital providers, yeah. to uh, to really constantly be testing new things, and we would encourage them to come in and uh, and bring us what the latest technology or the latest thinking was, with the idea being that we might be that. Uh, alpha client who would work with them to help develop and think about the application because in a lot of ways we had we had assets that they couldn't find in other companies in Canada. Um, and so when, again, your R&D flywheel is moving at a, at a pace where that's what you're focused on, 
you kind of read the tea leaves as an employee, I think, you know, an associate, you kind of look around and go, okay, I think this is what this place is about. And um, I'm either in or I'm, or I'm not in. I think the reason I said over the long run is that, um, you know, if I could go back and wave a magic wand and change something, it probably, uh, I'd go back about 10 years in history. And, you know, we started to focus on expanding and looking at geographic expansion and some new businesses and, uh, you know, we had to reinvest more in our in our core capacity, which was the Air Miles program. And I think that that we we kind of left ourselves a little bit exposed and had to play some catch up in the last five years, eliminating some technical debt and some things that we could have been doing a lot sooner. Um, but I think Blair and the team over there have done a great job of uh, of really picking up that that baton over the last couple of years and since i've left over the last year he's running it over there and uh doing a great job of kind of reinventing the program um bit by bit as we need to so uh yes yeah, it is that be careful what you ask for i think you always yeah. as a leader have to be keeping your eye on on the ball and exactly what you're doing yeah. and ensuring that you're delivering on that but always challenging the model and thinking about if that is my true purpose is to be doing x for for industry and for clients and to the consumer, how do I actually stretch that and and constantly challenge your business model? Makes total sense. And and so when you think of other organizations, what are some common leadership behaviors that you've seen uh, in those orgs that have taken that loyalty leap? Um, I, I think a, a relentless focus on the customer. I think people who really understand um, and get to the heart of what they're their business or product is meant to do. And then they create a, an experience, a, a, a brand. I mean, a brand is ultimately about an experience that you're creating, whether it's a physical product or whether it's a service in, in the way that you interact with it. But they're really passionate advocates for making sure that the whole organization is focused around, um, you know, a defined purpose of what they're there on the planet to do. That's, that's unique and maybe better that they can do better than anybody else. Yeah. And the second thing I would say is that they have a value, a value system that, that you see expressed in the way that they operate the business to fulfill that purpose. And I think great leaders uh, balance those two things. And if they're really, really lucky, you know, it happens to come along with a really tidy economic model um, that allows them to spin up, make money and be able to continue to fund the growth of the business. And if you do that and you're fortunate to actually be in a place that can that can check all those three boxes, um, you know, I think you, you, as long as, you know, your product fulfills on its basic promise, you have a, a great runway ahead of you. You know, you talk about the leadership behaviors of companies that have taken that loyalty leap. What What's the economic value for those companies? Like, it, based on all the years you worked at Loyalty One, did you see an inherent difference in the in the companies you guys worked with that had a heavy focus on on the three R's of loyalty versus the ones that may have only focused on rewards or not at all? I I mean, I'm an inherent believer of the fact that if you pursue the rewards recognition relevance model, that at the end of the day you're going to create differential results. Um, you know it's one of those horrible things where your answer is in some way, it depends. I mean, if you're operating yeah. in a category, which is under huge competitive threat where you're, you know, you're losing, you're losing customers, et cetera, over time, you know, what we saw is that we could stem those losses and in some cases reverse them. Right. And, uh, and I can definitely point to a number of clients in different categories 
that uh, that uh, an application of really focusing on their customers, understanding the dynamics, and really trying to differentiate um, your offering to your best customers uh, yielded significant results. I mean, the entire premise uh, of loyalty one and the air mile side of things was really based on three things happening. The first was that you did a better job of retaining your very best customers who were already likely to be highly retained, but you know, you, you were able to do them and get them to spend just a little more. Even your most loyal customers have headroom. The second thing was that you would convert 10 to 15% of your next best customers to best customers. And then the third thing was that you would use this coalition database, this information you had to profile the universe of customers who should be shopping with you. And if you could just attract two, three, four, five percent of those customers, you know, the program was a home run. It created ROIs in a hundred percent plus. Um, there was no question that that every cent and dollar you spent had a had a material payback to you. Uh, and so and that's even before you start to apply the foundational database principles we spent this time, you know, talking about how you then enhance yeah. the system. That was probably more about the grooming and, and basically the the, the yeah. way you, you enhance the existing customer base to be better customers. But um, so, yeah, the materiality is definitely there. Uh, I also think that, uh, that tactically, you know, we lived in an environment where Walmart expanded dramatically across Canada. It was in that, exactly in that window when they built out and then they built the grocery presence on top of that. And Walmart's a significant player in the food, food retail market now. But we managed to uh, be very defensive and, and very tactical around how we use the database to target existing highly loyal customers to make sure that they were incented to continue to shop at Safeway or at AMP or, you know, now Sobeys um, or Metro, we incented them to make sure that in that time period when a Home Depot for, for uh, against Rona or a Walmart against Safeway, and exactly during the time period when they'd be making their biggest offers to the consumer was exactly the time period when we'd be making our own biggest offers to ensure that we ring fence those best customers and they didn't even want to go to Walmart to try and that was hugely successful at stemming the tide of uh, of having customers move over and, and losing, you know, a shop every four weeks or something, which is pretty material when you actually put it in context. So, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm continue to be a passionate advocate for loyalty. I'm a huge advocate for customer data and measured marketing and how you understand who your customers are and uh, and treat them treat them in a way that's that's differential and also uh, effective at building long-term, you know, long-term uh, affinity, let's say. I'm going to end it there. I think that was a great summary of, uh, of our conversation. Um, where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about who you are and, and what you've been up to? Well, the easiest way is to find me uh, on uh, LinkedIn. I'm, uh, I, I'm uh, always uh, available and checking that. Um, I also write for Forbes. So if you go to Forbes.com and search my name, B-R-Y-A-N Pearson, um, like the airport, uh, you know, you'll have the stream of articles I've written over the last uh, five years with a little break for travel, um, but now back at it. That's awesome. Thanks, Brian, for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, look forward to continuing our chat in the future. Thanks, Scott. Enjoyed that a lot. As always, thanks for tuning in. If you're a fan of One to One, be sure to give us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Catch you next time.